Okay, my name is Nick Anfield and I'm director of the Sydney Centre for Language Research and I'm talking to Nina Rubino, the School of Languages and Cultures in Italian. Uh, and she's a member of the centre. Hi, Nina. Yes, hello, Nick. Thank you for this. Of course. Um, thanks for coming and talking to us. So I'm hoping to talk to you today about your research on language and identity. Uh, this is a field of linguistics that your work specifically uh, relates to. Uh, and your work has been on Italian in Australia and particularly in Sydney, I think. So uh, perhaps you could start by introducing us to your work on Italian in Sydney and where it's been and where it's going. Okay, yes, sure. Um, so for a number of years now, uh, since uh, the late 80s, in fact, I've been uh, researching uh, linguistic practices of uh, Italian migrants uh, in uh, Sydney in particular. And uh, I've been looking, after, looking at uh, the practices of the first, the second, and more recently also the third generation. And uh, my interest has been in the main on language maintenance, so the uh, transmission uh, of uh, Italian and dialect, and I will say something about dialect maybe later on, um, from the parents to the children. Um, so what uh, I was interested in in particular was uh, the language as used within the family. And so I worked in particular with some uh, Sicilian Australian families because I'm of Sicilian background and uh, looking at how uh, the languages of their repertoire, that is uh, Italian, uh, which is very often a second language for the majority of post-war migrants, dialect, which uh, in the Italian context uh, is a separate languages, as distinct languages from Italian, and very often were the first language of uh, the majority of post-war migrants, and English, so how the three languages are used in conversation, how they mix and how uh, they are strategically used also in order to uh, mark, for example, certain identities, um, as particular social roles, for example, as parents versus children. So um, one uh, analysis that I did, a specific analysis within a very large corpus of conversations collected within the families was, for example, looking at the specific act of conflict, conflictual talk. And um, I was trying to explore how both of the children and the mother basically were capitalizing or were emphasizing the use of one or the other languages and basically using code switching extensively in order to position themselves in particular identities. So the mother as the mother, so trying to emphasize her authority, for example, the children sometimes trying to reverse the roles of uh, you know the parental parent-children roles as well. So basically, one I think of the major findings that uh, came out of my research was the fact that, uh, like other studies have shown in other contexts, in other diasporic contexts, is the fact that uh, languages are not mixed at random, but very much so, very much or very often uh, for specific purposes in order to convey specific meanings. So can I ask, um, it's fascinating what you've just been saying, you use the term strategic 
and you also use the term code switching. Maybe people might find it useful if you could define what you mean by code switching and just explain, uh, perhaps with an example, how code switching works and, and in what way you might use code switching to, to do the kind of thing you just described with a, a, a mother and her child, you know, having an argument, for example. Yes. Uh, well, code switching is also <laughs> a term that has had lots and lots of different definitions, so it is uh, important to define it or clarify it, uh, not for this particular audience, but in any, any article, any scholarly work that deals with code switching uh, includes uh, a definition because, as I was saying, it has been uh, defined uh, um, in very different ways and also it's uh, studied, it's explored in, uh, within very different paradigms. So uh, in my work, I use uh, a sort of, you know, I draw upon uh, um, sort of converse, uh, the notion of code switching that goes back to Gumperts, to the uh, um, sociolinguist uh, Gumperts. And basically, I look at conversational code switching. So the change of language within the flow of conversation. So um, that's the, 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 the type of code switching that I was referring to. So when you're switching from English to Italian and back to English within the middle of a sentence. Exactly, or within the middle sentences. of a sentence, from one sentence to the other, from one turn to the other, for example. Yes, uh, normally uh, sort of fairly large units of different size within the discourse. Yes, that's, uh, that's what I refer to as code switching. And um, yes, of course, there is a very long tradition of studies that shows uh, that code switching can be used for specific uh, purposes. And you know, Gumpert's work is, of course, um, you know, the, the, the first one you know, to show us a kind of a taxonomy of um, of um, you know functions that code switching can have. Um, so yes, that's what uh, that's the notion that I applied in order to analyze the trilingual conversation that I was uh, that I was uh, talking about that I collected within the family. And the interesting thing is also to see how, for example, in one of the families that looked that I looked at, even with uh, a sort of you know what we can consider a sort of limited uh, language competence uh, by the children they could still, by playing with the three languages, they could still transmit so much meaning, um, as I said, you know, uh, through switching between the languages. So and there's something I'd be interested to, to know if what you're currently talking about relates to this distinction. So you, uh, in some of the material I looked at by you, you noted this distinction, uh, the idea of a double function of a, of a language such as Italian in, in Sydney, that it has both a communicative function and a symbolic function. Does, can you explain what that means and, and, and tell us whether that relates to the kinds of um, phenomena you're talking about with code switching? Um, well, I, the notions that, uh, yes, you are referring to is uh, something that I've uh, um, used more recently in some work that I've been doing uh, in the past couple of years, uh, which is more related to the use of Italian in the public space rather than in the private space. But I suppose that you could, yes, uh, use uh, the same notion of uh, symbolic use of the language in that context. So, for example, I'm uh, thinking of uh, a very nice interaction between uh, children and uh, children, mother and children, 
where the children at one point sort of pretend to uh, reprimand uh, the mother because she's using uh, the dialect rather than Italian. And basically they take on the identity of their Italian teacher. And so they sort of, you know, um, um, say, they repeat what the mother say, but in Italian and uh, emphasizing the endings of the words, which is obviously something that happens in the Italian classroom. So I suppose this could be very well um, kind of symbolic rather than communicative use of, uh, of the language. Um, but yes, what, what, we, what you were referring to before is this idea that uh, um, in Sydney, uh, in the public space that I have anal analyzed, which is uh, partly uh, an Italian uh, sub suburb, Italian into inverted commas, so an inner west suburb that uh, has a fairly high you know, um, density of Itali Italian born, uh, and other suburbs in Sydney. And uh, what I try to do there in my analysis is to see how, for example, the changing nature of the suburb and the changing demography uh, of the suburb is to an extent indexed, reflected in the bilingualism of the signs that on the one hand... So you're talking about signs, street signs and uh, shop yes, signs? Uh, and yes, commercial establishment signs, okay? So I'm talking about shops here. Yeah. I'm talking about shops, restaurants, cafes, etc. And this is like specifically Leichhardt and Haberfield? It was Haberfield, yes. Haberfield. It was Haberfield. In fact, Haberfield and Leichhardt. And so I'm trying to show how basically, on the one hand, there is uh, uh, the use of Italian that refers specifically to the Italy-born and uh, to an elderly population that at times actually does not still master English. And on the other hand, there is the use of English as well, together in the, within the same signs, in order to appeal to a wider, a wider uh, uh, population of, you know, that speaks English instead, English-speaking population that would not be necessarily familiar with, uh, with, uh, with Italian or with Italian words. So this combination is uh, obviously has uh, a double purpose, if you want, and that's what I mean. That's what I refer to with this double function of uh, communicative uh, and uh, symbolic functions of Italian. So that would be like saying. For example, Chinese characters are on the front of a Chinese restaurant and you, if you don't know Chinese, you don't understand what they mean, but it tells you this is a Chinese restaurant or maybe it's more authentic or something like that. Um, you've written about authenticity and I'm quite interested to, to know kind of how you see language relating to authenticity. It, it might be interesting to give us a bit of background on the Italian, uh, the, the, essentially the history of... Italian language being used in places like Haberfield and Leichhardt because it's really been quite a long time now, I think. Uh, and so I wonder what, you know, if you could give us a bit of background of what have been the sort of phases in a way of Italian being used in, 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 in these parts of Sydney and whether the significance of Italian would have changed significantly. So, you know, for example, when I was a kid uh, in the 70s, I might have gone to a place I might have been part of a certain discourse around Italian uh, ethnicity or Italian language, and which I think may be really quite different to you know what a kid might absorb today if they went to to Haberfield and went to you know a bakery or something like that. 
Oh uh, yes, definitely. I think that uh, yes, <laughs> things have changed. Things have changed a lot, and uh, of course, uh, you know, the Italian mass migration goes back all the way to the. Uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, as we know, uh, like other groups, uh, the Greeks, uh, and so on. And uh, of course, now we are in a very, very different phase. And um, um, I suppose that uh, the big change, I mean, a lot of uh, people can still remember very well, um, elderly people in particular remember very well the uh, times when uh, you know you could not really speak Italian in public, you would have been really reprimanded or very looked at, looked at very sternly, or uh, you know uh, the times when uh, you know a term like wog was extremely common. I've got friends who remember you know how <laughs> it was repeated to them every day on their playgrounds, school playgrounds. And uh, well, being um, a group that has been here a long time, in a way, the Italians do not bear the brunt of this uh, kind of racism anymore. Unfortunately, it's affecting other groups, you know, yeah. and uh, <laughs> indigenous groups, <laughs> number one, we must remember. Um, but uh, um, yes, for the Italians, things changed dramatically throughout the 80s in particular. So that's when, uh, really, when the image of uh, Italy, the Italians, the Italian language, not just in Australia, but worldwide, changed dramatically. And um, this was connected to a series of events. And um, the economic circumstances in Italy changed very much. Um, the Made in Italy brand became extremely well known. Uh, so the impact of uh, a lot of uh, Italian things uh, in Australia uh, was uh, significant uh, throughout those years. And those were also the years when, of course, as a result of the policy of multiculturalism in Australia, um, the, you know, in 1987, uh, the national language policy, the promotion of multilingualism, the promotion of language teaching, the support of the Italian government as well, all these factors contributed very much to, for example, the introduction of uh, the Italian language in schools, particularly at primary level. So there is no doubt that that contributed very much to changing perceptions uh, amongst the, um, you know, within the Australian society towards uh, uh, Italian language, uh, no longer considered as the language of the Wogs, um, the Italian language, it Italy in general, and so on and so forth. For example, in Sydney, we have, in Sydney and in Australia in general, we have uh, huge numbers of adults who learn Italian in uh, the continuing education context. Today. You know? Today, oh yes, absolutely. The numbers are very, very high. And who are these adults who are learning Italian today? Well, if you want to know a little bit more about this, you can read a book <laughs> <laughs> that uh, one of our doctoral students has, uh, you know, uh, which is based on her doctoral thesis, and she actually studied uh, people of um, English-speaking background who study Italian in uh, the Dante Alighieri Society and the Workers' Educational Association and uh, the motivations to study Italian. So I just, want, uh, I just want to bring this as an example of the popularity that uh, Italian acquired starting from the 80s. Yep. Right. And by the way, her name is Cristiana Palmieri, so I recommend her book very What's much. What's the book called? Oof. Got me there. We'll uh, second language trajectories of uh, uh, maybe Anglophone adults. Um, 
I don't know. Anyway, Palmieri. <laughs> so, okay, so, it, so this, I was, as I was saying, so the 80s were very much a landmark for the teaching of Italian, for general perceptions towards uh, Italian. And so, I, yes, what you said before uh, is perfectly right, that uh, um, Italian, um, well, John Hajek in the Yvette Slaughter, in uh, one, in a chapter that they wrote, talk about the mainstreaming of Italian, okay? Because uh, Italian became, by default, for example, the language to be taught in primary schools. Mm. And while, you know, a lot of uh, this kind of operation can be critiqued for in, because, for example, it wasn't terribly beneficial in terms of language maintenance. Um, definitely, it was, uh, you know, um, probably beneficial in terms of affecting perceptions and attitudes, language attitudes as well amongst the, uh, you know, the Australian population. I so, so when you talk about language maintenance, uh, do you mean? the Italian-speaking communities continuing to use Italian in their homes and in their communities rather than letting it die out in some sense or their yes. children and grandchildren no longer learning it. Yes, that's it, right. Has that been successful? Okay, has been successful. I mean, it's all relative, of course. <laughs> and so, mm, you know, there's been a lot of work, of course, being done in this area using data of very different nature, quantitative, qualitative, and, for example, from the late 70s and early 80s, Michael Klein and his associates started this uh, extremely important uh, tradition of, uh, of uh, analysis of the census data that, of course, uh, are uh, the language question of the census data that is, of course, extremely important uh, because uh, it allows us also to compare, in, in spite of all the limitation of this kind of self-reporting of language use, um, census data allows us to uh, compare the different uh, communities as well. So, so this concerns the question in the census where you say what languages are used in your home. That's right, yes. Do you speak a language other than English at home? If so, do you want? And then also the competence about English, yes. So all the studies try uh, position Italian as an intermediate language in, 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 the, in terms of rates of language maintenance or shift. So the Italians basically are not as bad, in Roberti commas, <laughs> that is, they don't lose their language from one generation to the other as fast as, uh, for example, the Germans or the Dutch, but uh, they're not as good as other comparable groups, such as the Greeks, for example, in terms of uh, transmitting the language intergenerationally. So, yes, uh, Klein has always placed the Italians in a kind of intermediate position. So in research on languages of immigrant communities, it's often said that after two and then three generations, a language will disappear mm. in the sense that it won't be passed on to the younger generation. You know, the, the, first ge the, the second mm. generation will <clears throat> not understand the language because their parents spoke it with them and then but they won't speak it to their own kids, so yes. in the third generation it, it, it goes. Um, but, of course, then the question comes up, well, what happens then with those subsequent generations if they have some kind of affinity or loyalty or interest in the culture and the ethnicity that that, that yes. language denotes? Do they become motivated then to, to learn the language 
uh, again or better. So oftentimes we hear people mm. saying, oh, I regret that yes. my parents didn't teach me the language or I regret that I didn't pay attention when they spoke it to me as a kid. So are you seeing a trend at all in, uh, you know, uh, descendants of Italian immigrants who would now be, I don't know, fourth generation? Mm -hmm. um, are they now saying, well, actually, yeah, we want to we want to go to school. That's why I was asking about yes. who's learning Italian. So yes. are those people among the groups who are learning Italian formally now? Yes, I mean, there is no doubt that uh, in our in our classes, we have uh, a good number of uh, third generation uh, uh, Italian Australians that uh, want to learn their language for a range of mo motivations. There is like, this strong attachment to the grandparents, for example, so a lot of them do it also because uh, th that's what they clearly state in their reasons for learning Italian because they want to improve their communication, for example, with their grandparents. So that's a very strong motivation. But, um, I mean, Italian in a way is a language that counts upon a range of different uh, sort of motivational drives. And uh, in a way, that's, that, that is <laughs> a strength of the language. So, you know, uh, it, together with the family factor and the fact that, you know, uh, better communication within the family, uh, there could be also other reasons uh, that uh, combine with this and, for example, you know, uh, pursuing uh, further studies in Italy because maybe, um, you know, they're studying uh, uh, architecture, art, art history or, uh, you know, design um, areas for which Italy is quite well known. So, um, you know, very often it's not a one single factor. But yes, I mean, I'm, I'm conducting now a small project on uh, the third generation. And um, yes, there is this desire uh, amongst them. Of course, uh, you know, it's not a very large sample, so it's, uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, but um, among some of these uh, participants, there is this very strong desire to, uh, to improve their Italian, to use their Italian. And um, in a way, we're lucky because there are more opportunities today. And uh, of course, technology you know, can uh, help in this uh, sense. And um, you know, the, the, the old models also of language transmissions, if you want, are sort of you know, um, a bit out of, uh, no longer relevant and not as relevant as in the past, as in the past when analyzing uh, language transmission. Because of course, I mean, I can see this with my children. They are both bilingual, but very often they speak to me in English every right. day. And uh, then they just go into their room and then uh, they connect with their friends in Italy. And that's where they use Italian. They don't use Italian with me. So, I mean, obviously the family context is still extremely important. But today there are so many other means whereby, you know, you can, uh, you know, use the language uh, that uh, sort of things, the situation has changed dramatically compared with uh, what it was, uh, you know, for the children of the post-war migrants, for example. Right. To talk to people in Italy, you would have had to make a international <laughs> expensive telephone phone call. call. Yes, I remember. <laughs> cost a lot of money. For it was very expensive. You, yes, yes. I remember talk. very well. Yes. <laughs> so I'm interested to ask about the issue of, uh, you know, language change. So mm -hmm. you mentioned that there have been generations now speaking Italian in Australia, and now that goes back. 70 years, which is amazing to think. Uh, yeah, and even earlier, if you think that even pre-war, 
I mean, the Italian communities was uh, one of the largest. So, you know, in the 30s in Sydney, for example. So, you know, <laughs> we can even, even go back. So you have this very deep yes. um, history mm. already uh, of Italian being spoken in Australia. Yes. And so, of course, the language that, for example, somebody's old grandparents speak today in, in, in Haberfield or Leichhardt is going to be different from the language that is spoken by young people today in Italy. Uh, whether it's in the place where they came mm. from or some other uh, some other part of Italy, so I mean I ask because in my own experience, so I work on Lao, the language of Laos, which is also uh, a major community language in Sydney, but it has a different historical trajectory. It was a language that came with a lot of uh, refugee groups in the late seventies and eighties. Mm -hmm. So that was that period that you mentioned yes. Italian changing. And so it's, you know, Lao has been kind of uh, just historically later, but the changes that we see with Lao have been interesting in terms of how they, how the Lao language that's spoken today in, in Sydney by the communities mm. here has diverged in interesting ways mm. from the Lao that is spoken in, in Laos. And mm -hmm. there are a number of interesting reasons for that. There are political uh, reasons for that because, of course, the refugees were leaving a place that they no longer were able to live in or they didn't want to live in for political reasons. So you now have a very interesting dynamic mm. between the modern-day Lao speakers of uh, Sydney, who are who are now, for example, travelling back to Laos or mm. reconnecting mm. with groups. I mean, th this has been going on for some time now, but those reconnections after a period of absence involved having to negotiate, you know, the shifts and the changes that have taken place in the language since the isolation, in a sense. Uh, so, did you find that happening that the, the the Italian language in Sydney somehow underwent certain changes, or it didn't keep up with certain changes that that took place in Italy, such that, you know, uh, Australian Italian in some sense mm. then became its own variety? Look, uh, there was a big debate about this in terms of, uh, you know, is there a variety called Australian Italian or Italian Australian? And uh, in fact, at Fisher Library, we even have a dictionary of Australian Italian, which was published in the 80s. Um, but uh, I do not believe that uh, this is the case at all. What, uh, what characterised the speech of uh, uh, you know, post-war migrants were a series of uh, sort of you know, transfers, uh, particularly at the lexical levels, that uh, would uh, characterise their own sort of everyday informal speech. Okay? Um, so when I first started doing fieldwork, for example, I was quite astonished at uh, how competent, uh, in a way, and how yeah how uh, dexterous uh, these speakers were in terms of varying their register, if you want, when they were speaking amongst themselves and when they were speaking to me, as uh, for example an interviewer coming from the university and speaking mainly in Italian. So um, to tell you the truth, I think that uh, it, it, you know the variety that was spoken here, of course, it's different because it's characterized by the insertion of uh, sort of, you know, lexical transfers, more or less integrated, you know, and some of them have become uh, a bit of a joke. For example, when I use, the, I, you know, sometimes I mention them in my classes, 
some third generation Italian Australians laugh because they can recognize these words, these specific words, as sort of markers of their grandparents' speech. Oh, what, what would okay. be an example of one of those? Oh, well, a typical example is uh, fenza. Okay, that's one that always causes a lot of laughter, okay, which is uh, fence, which becomes fenza uh, okay. in, uh, in uh, Italian Australian, if you want. And admittedly, I use it as well because the Italian equivalent, I mean, when I talk to at home, you know, and also we laugh if you want. But to tell you the truth, the Italian equivalent is the word stecionata, which is uh, quite <laughs> a mouthful <laughs> word. And also it's hardly hardly used in Italy because, uh, you know, basically, you know, as a long tradition of studies has shown, there is a reason why you use this transfer. And this transfer is used also because it corresponds extremely well and, you know, um, designates so well the Australian fence in a typical Australian garden, you know, which would not exist in Italy. And therefore, I personally think that fence or fence, if you want to, if you want to make a bit of a joke of it, Fenza is uh, so much better in terms of designating that particular reference. So, so, so really, this is really what it boiled down to, if you want. Of course, uh, the, some of the studies that were conducted in the 80s and the early 90s showed that uh, the frequencies of transfers, you know, the, 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 depended upon a lot of factors such as, you know, the communicative situation, the educational background of, uh, of the speaker, the um, monitoring as well, because, you know, some migrants are more, you know, self-conscious in terms of language than others, for example, depending on their occupation very, very often, you know, if they had shops, for example, you know, their, their level of Italian was considerably uh, higher as well because they were always in contact with, uh, with a range of Italians from different regions as well. And um, they also had to make themselves, uh, you know, uh, clearer. So that's, that's really what it was. And so what, even now, what distinguishes, if you want, even when I hear the, the radio, radio programs produced here, and when I hear radio programs from Italy, what distinguishes, in a way, the, 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 the speech is, for example, the insertion of certain discourse markers, okay, and yeah, and the occasional English word that you would use because you know you're operating in a bilingual context and therefore mm. you have no qualms about, you know, resorting to English once you know that your interlocu interlocutor understands you very well. So that's really what it is. And that's also my norm, my, my norm when I speak here. And of, I know very well that when I go back to Italy, the cu first couple of days, it's pretty hard to, you know, keep out certain words, certain <laughs> markers, you know, not, not say yeah, yeah, all the time, and so on and so forth. So this is really uh, what I would say. Of course, there is uh, that being out of touch with the uh, um, development of the Italian language. And sometimes it can be out of touch in a funny way. Sometimes you're not aware of living here, maybe. You're not aware that a particular English word is now used in Italy. Mm. So that, uh, you know, um, you are out of sync in that respect, that you don't realize that so many of the words that we use here maybe have already entered the Italian language and so maybe we search for the Italian equivalent. Um, so yes, I, I don't think that the Italian case can be parallel to the, uh, what, uh, you know, what you were describing in terms of uh, Lao. 
Of course, uh, there is also, um, it depends on the person, depends on the, on the on also on the uh, kind of acquisition that, uh, and learning of Italian. So you can have the case of a second generation, of a third generation, who has studied Italian formally, who has studied in Italy, that has, uh, you know, a wider uh, range of uh, lexicon or, you know, registers than their parents or grandparents, of mm. course, you know, who are maybe much more limited in terms of registers. And then, of course, there are the obvious case in terms of variation related to age. My son was in Italy for six months studying there, and, of course, he, he knows all the youth language that I don't know at all, particularly, you know, in, a, in the particular city where he was. So, yes, so, but in terms of drastic uh, changes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't right. say so. Okay, um, well, we have time for just one more uh, question, which I'd like to ask about in relation to the upshot of your research and the research that others have done on the Italian experience uh, in Australia, sort of really relating to the broad outcomes of the research that have been done here on language maintenance, as you put it. Um, and I'd, I'd like to ask what you think are the lessons that we can learn from the research that's been done on Italian, given the kind of I, I take it there's been quite a bit of research and certainly it's a language spoken by a large community over a long period of time. Th what lessons can we draw from that work for the situation of other languages in a place like Sydney, which now has, I don't know how many languages, it's hundreds uh, by now and certainly much more, you know, vastly bigger population now than, it, than Sydney had when uh, the, those post-war Italian um, movements happened. So what, what do you think the lessons uh, are that we could draw from the Italian experience for the present and the future of other community languages in Sydney? Yes, okay. Um, I think that uh, one lesson is how important the external support is for uh, a language. So I was mentioning before the teaching of Italian. So how important, for example, a site like education is in terms of uh, um, um, language maintenance, um, changing attitudes, um, um, making um, changing perceptions of that particular language and making that language more visible. So I think a, a, an important lesson is uh, uh, education is uh, very, very important. Uh, I didn't mention the obvious one, introduction to literacy, of course, in that particular language. And of course, we know that it's uh, very difficult to do it for the hundreds of languages that we have here. And we know that Australia is uh, has uh, the whole sector of the community languages schools, of course, that is thriving. And, uh, and we know that basically the communities themselves have done a lot of work, uh, have done and continue to do a lot of work uh, in terms of um, um, setting up schools, opening up schools, uh, uh, teaching uh, on a volunteering basis, and so on and so forth. 
but uh, yes, and uh, of course the community language schools are supported also uh, by uh, public funds, which is an excellent, an excellent thing. So mm. I would uh, like to stress this factor. So education is definitely very, very important because, uh, um, well, language maintenance, language trans transmission, bringing up children bilinguals and so on, and so on it's very tiring. It's a very tiring, very tiring work. And um, research has shown it's very gendered work as well. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do it if you don't have support outside. So I think that that's very, very important. Um, I suppose the other thing, another lesson that comes out of the Italian experience is to try to find a balance between the language maintenance efforts and uh, the spreading of your language, if you want. Okay, so the mainstreaming that I was talking about before. Um, Klein pointed out how the Italians have been particularly open about this, generous in sort of wanting to share the language. So he actually talks about the openness of uh, the Italians in this respect. But as I said uh, earlier, this also went a little bit at the expenses of, uh, of, multi of, um, of language maintenance. So I think that, uh, you know, there has to be this sort of balance between uh, sort of provisions for uh, background speakers, for example, and uh, provisions for a particular language as a, a second language. So I think that's, uh, that's uh, very important. Um, well, I, I firmly believe that multilingualism is a big strength of Australia. And uh, one of the reasons why I was uh, doing that work on multilingualism in the public space is because I think that Australia could do so much more in terms of uh, making this, making its multilingual nature visible which in turn, I believe, would encourage maintenance of multilingualism, meant of bilingualism, multilingualism, and promotion of uh, languages in general, which I think is very badly needed. And uh, I dream of <laughs> an Australian society where we would have lots and lots of uh, indigenous words everywhere, where the indigenous languages were to become much more in the uh, on the on the uh, how do you say uh, much more visible uh, and studied and learned at school as part of the curriculum, and together also migrant languages uh, could become uh, much more accepted, much more studied, much more promoted at all levels. Um, the other thing is, I suppose, that uh, sometimes there is uh, a bit of, well, uh, the other lessons that we can learn is also how factors that are outside our control sometimes affect what happens here as well. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, we were lucky in a way that uh, the image of Italy changed throughout the 80s and that helped. I also remember distinctly how 
bad things were for the Italians when Berlusconi went to power. And all of a sudden, <laughs> basically, we were ridiculed and the image of Italy was sort of back to where we were. Uh, you know, so this is something also to consider in a way. And that's something that migrant communities here are extremely aware of, how much what happens outside impacts upon uh, the diasporic uh, communities. So that's uh, something to consider. And uh, maybe what, what I was saying before, I, I don't know, I mean, the, the issue of multilingualism, and as shown in many other contexts, multilingualism as a, as a very much accepted way of speaking, rather than thinking that, uh, you know, changing language in conversation is something to be censored, something that... Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, necessarily mean lack of competence in the language. I think that's, uh, that's uh, what, uh, but as, uh, this is not just our studies, but also several other studies. But the idea that uh, this kind of flexible multilingualism uh, using different uh, languages within conversations are um, an extremely versatile and effective tool of communication. I think that's quite an important point that comes out of this line of research, you know, including the research within the Italians. And also, if I may say, yeah, um, I was forgetting an important point. I mean, there is also the issue of non-standard language, of course. That's a big lesson that also comes out of, uh, of the Italian experience. Um, I haven't said much about dialects, but of course, dialects are an important, very important part of uh, the cultural uh, heritage of, of Italy. They are also declining in Italy, apart from um, a few regions. They're still there. They're still, although, you know, in the 90s, uh, the linguists thought that they were going to be extinguished very, very rapidly. Um, very often, they are more used uh, in, uh, in the diaspora rather than uh, in the home country. Um, the study that I was talking about before, about, uh, about the third generation, clearly show that uh, between Italian and dialect, of, of course, it's Italian that is being, uh, that is maintained more across generations. Still, there is a very strong affective uh, uh, value associated with uh, dialects. So another lesson that uh, can be uh, taken from the Italian experience is uh, the, the important role of dialects as uh, um, a cultural family uh, marker, which uh, retains a lot of value for uh, the third generation and the fourth generation. And so maybe also to think of ways to, uh, to uh, retain this heritage that uh, sometimes uh, still exists in the diasporic communities while it's already lost. So maybe to think also of projects where you know, this kind of uh, heritage can be, uh, um, can be part of uh, you know, something that is part of the Australian heritage as well, Australian context as well. Well, I look forward to seeing those projects flourish. Nina Rubino, thank you very much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you to you, Nick.